Thank you, worship team. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 is where we are today. And this wonderful section here and the song that we just sang just really sets it up beautifully. We are continuing our study of the book of Acts. If this is your first Sunday here, we are studying through the book of Acts. We left off uh, in the in the middle of a of a story where Paul has been preaching in a uh, in a church or in a synagogue in Antioch, Poseidon, Sidian, and he is uh, has just preached the gospel, and now we're going to see the result of that preaching. And I want to read to you the text we're going to study here this morning, and so you can just follow along. I'm going to read Acts chapter 13, verses 42. Through 52, and as I said, this is now the result of this sermon. Peter, or I mean, Paul has just shown how Jesus is the center of the Old Testament, as we would call it. How he's the center of all the promises of God, and he laid it out thoroughly. And uh, and now here is the result. Acts 13, beginning in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray here this morning. God, thank you for uh, the wonderful worship, being reminded of the glory of Christ being reminded of this great, great news of the gospel. And as we just sung, it is sweet to think of the name of Jesus. It's healing for us. Thank you, God, that uh, we get to celebrate that in community today and now study in community that we might all the more love your word and, and engage in the power of it. Thank you, God, for the privilege now. May this opportunity and may this time that we take for these next few moments encourage our heart, strengthen us, and embolden us to live for your kingdom. In Christ's name, amen. This week I was reminded of the first experience I had in sharing the gospel with some, well, sharing, trying to share some form of a gospel with somebody. And uh, some of you are familiar with the story. I've been here so long now, all my stories are old, and I just can't change the fact that it's just what happened. But I'm going to share with you a story I've shared before. But it was the first time I ever tried being faithful. 
Uh, it was actually, um, I was maybe seven years old. It was the first time we went to this church, and, and I heard a message uh, by uh, the preacher who was preaching about hell, actually. It was one of those hellfire and brimstone messages, and he's up there describing what hell's going to be like, and it scared me, right? It was just a terrifying message. And, and he said, if you don't want to go there, and if you want to, you know, if you want to go to heaven and be with Jesus, you got to come forward. And when I was seven years old, I ran down to the front. I did not want to go to that place called hell. And so I prayed, and the pastor said, you now need to go share this with somebody tomorrow. Seven years old, this is all I know, right? This is it. This is the sum total of my theology is this sermon, that there's this place called hell, and everyone's going there. And I was just commissioned to go to school the next day and share it with somebody. And so I was going to obey. I'm going to go the next day. And in my grade school that I went to, all the kids would kind of line up outside the doorway of where your class was. And, and we'd all line up. And then when this bell rang, we'd all get to walk into the school together. And uh, so I was standing in line waiting as the kids were gathering. And there was this girl in front of me. And my conscience is bothering me. I've got to share the gospel. I've got to share this with this person. So I tap her on the shoulder. And I say, you're going to hell she didn't interpret that as a message of love and salvation. She took it that I was cursing her. She proceeded to tell me where to go and then beat me up. Seriously, she threw me in a snowbank and just pummeled me. (laughs) Teacher pulls her off. I'm like, well, that didn't go well. Yeah, you know. I got sworn at and beat up by a girl. (laughs) I was thinking about that this week because I was thinking about the fact that that though that probably wasn't the best approach at sharing the gospel, um, there is a reality of preaching and and sharing truth with people is this. The the reality is that whenever we bring up the name of Jesus, it's a controversial thing, right? Truth and, and the truth of Jesus is not a neutral message, right? It's not neutral. Even if I had actually been taught how to share the gospel correctly, uh, it would not have been a neutral message. People will, will either embrace it or they'll hate it. It's why they say, you know, they tell airline pilots, don't talk about religion or politics, right? It's, these are controversial things. Don't sit in the cockpit and get in a fight, right? And so this, don't, don't talk about this stuff. And especially when you're bringing up references to Jesus, it's not neutral. And here's the reason why it's not neutral, if you don't know this already. The message of Jesus will either be embraced or rejected because it's either going to bring healing to someone or it's going to challenge them. It does one or the other when you, when you preach it correctly. It brings healing to those who are weighed down by sin, right, that, that are ready to get rid of religion, get ready to, to, you know, to get rid of their past and all the things that plague them and, and all that stuff that weighs heavy on their heart. You know, you can come in and say, listen, Jesus, you know, covered your sin, everything that Jim talked about here this morning, that all this stuff that Christ has done for you, he's forgiven your sin, he has, he's removed the guilt, he's removed the shame, he's made it so that you can be washed clean, that you don't have to be defined by your past, you don't have to be defined by your parents, you don't have to be defined by all the bad things that you did, you can be defined by the righteousness of Jesus, you can be set free from religion, you can be set free from all the hard works and trying to earn your way to heaven, right? And that message, some people are going, that's what I need to hear. Brings healing, right? To other people, though, it brings a challenge because it says that you can't save yourself, that you're not in the right place, that things aren't going well in your life. 
and that, that you yourself need redemption. And that can become a challenge to someone who's saying, no, I am good enough. I have done it. I have followed the religion. And, and to such a degree that it can create division, right? When my parents became Christians, my grandparents wrote us off. And after my parents became Christians, I only saw my grandparents two times after that. They wanted nothing to do with us. That was it. They were separated completely. Why? Because the message of Jesus is a challenge at times to people. It's a challenge. And what it does is it evokes a response. And we know that that is true. We know that. And that's why sometimes we have a tendency to back down with truth, right? Sometimes it's easy to take a step backwards because that pressure can come on. I had no idea what the response was going to be when I tried to share the gospel with that girl. And I quickly learned, wow, this is not a popular message. This is not popular. And it's easy to back down. It's easy to take a step backwards. But what we have to realize is that the message does evoke a set of responses. And the passage we're looking at today unfolds all of the responses that you see. And we're going to look at this. We're going to kind of examine the different responses that, 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 that Paul and Barnabas got after they just clearly proclaimed that Jesus is the center of everything. Jesus is the Savior. He's the point of history. He's the point of all truth. He's the one. He's the only way to get to heaven. He's the only way to understand God. He's everything, right? Paul has just made this so clear. And now we're going to see a series of responses. If you have a bulletin, you'll see the various responses there outlined in your bulletin. Some of the responses, there's excitement, right? Because the gospel is good news. It's wonderful news. There's jealousy. Those who hate the gospel, they're challenged and they become jealous. There's courage that's needed because when the jealousy comes up, that's the first pressure that you have when you're the one bringing the message to step backwards. And so there's a need for courage at that moment. And when courage is seen and the truth is maintained, then there's belief. People believe because God desires to save people. He desires it. He loves it. And when people believe, though, then there's anger. There's anger because those who are resistant attack, and they attack the people. And so we're going to see all these responses, and there's two things that that I want us to get out of this as we go through it, at least two. One is this, that I do want you to see all these responses. I do want you to engage this I want you to understand this reality so that you would have courage. You would be bold. And that you would understand what God is doing and and the reality of what it's like to live as his ambassadors in this world. But secondly, there's a second thing that I hope that you get from this, is a way of not only praying for ourselves, but very specifically praying for our missionaries. That this should give you insight as to how to pray for our missionaries because The missionaries are actually going into these same kind of worlds, experiencing these same kind of things every day. And this should give us insight as to how to pray for them. And I hope it does do that, not only for ourselves, but for those that we have commissioned from here to go and preach the gospel clearly and boldly into into new territories. So let's look at this together. Let's look at the first response, which is excitement. The fact that the gospel is really good news. Let's look at this together. Look at verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. So if you weren't here last week, we studied what Paul had preached. He, he was in a, they had read from the Old Testament 
in the synagogue. They would have just called it the Scriptures. And then because Paul was a rabbi, they said, would you like to come up and share? And Paul stands up and says, listen, I'm going to share with you and show you that how, how all of these Old Testament Scriptures point us to Jesus, who's the fulfillment, who's God's promise, who's God's one that God had planned on bringing salvation to the world. So he proclaims this message. Very thorough, big, heavy message. Now notice the response of the people. The people begged that these things might be told the next Sabbath. They are literally saying, stick around for another week, come back next Saturday, preach more of this. We need to hear more. I love that response because it shows me something. I get a little you know, insight into this. And it's the reality that, that, that it is truth that they were responding to. Now, just a little side note. I'll give you a little personal application. You know, when you're a preacher sometimes, you could be in a situation where, where you've got some truth, some heavy truth. And sometimes you might think, boy, I'm just going to stand up here. I'm just going to deliver this stuff. And people aren't going to be interested. And so, therefore, the temptation comes, should we kind of dazzle the message up? Maybe I'll get a few chainsaws on fire and juggle them and tell people about Jesus, you know, and, you know, it'll be pretty cool, you know, and then tell them a poem and cry a little bit and get people like, you know, just joining in the emotion of the moment because people just don't want truth. And that is a pressure that, that pastors have. That is a pressure. There are moments when you look at a text and you go, how do you preach that? And yet the reality is that when God is at work in someone's life and truth hits them, they want more truth. It's really an important message. And, and that's just not a message for me as a, as a preacher, as I'm just preaching to myself here. But it's a message, I think, for, for all of us to realize that we don't have to be afraid of truth. We don't have to alter it. Paul laid out a pretty heavy message. If you were here last week, I mean, we were in the deep end of the pool with him. And as he unfolded this, what is their response? Not like, wow, Paul, that was a heavy message, man. We're just kind of used to more of that 15-minute thing, you know, and just a few poems and a you know, a couple of tips on how to have a good marriage. And, you know, we weren't ready for this really deep theology. But what's going on? They're saying, we want more. We need more. Give us more. Because truth, when uniting with what God's doing in someone's heart, creates a desire for more truth, not less truth. And so notice what happens, verse 43. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas as they spoke, and as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So you get the picture. They're walking out of the synagogue. They got Jews and Gentiles following them, saying, Tell us more, tell us more. And notice what they did. They continued to point them to the grace of God, which is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel isn't that. God gave us the book of, De- of Deuteronomy, and it's got a whole bunch of laws in it, and the book of Leviticus with a whole bunch of laws, and keep going. Keep doing more. The message of the gospel is all of these laws were in place to show you that you could never stand in the presence of a holy God. You could never do it. You are so impure. You are so unholy. But here's the good news. Christ has covered your unholiness and has shared and given you his righteousness. Now you can stand in his presence fulfilling the law. There is the good news of the gospel. It's a wonderful news, wonderful picture, and that's grace. God does it because he wants to. He does it because that's who he is. He's a gracious God, and he bestows it upon you, and he says, 
keep going, keep going, keep going in Jesus. That's what he keeps telling them. Keep going. Now, this is a message. You can imagine people who are steeped in religious tradition, steeped in all the ritual cleansings that they got to do, steeped in all of the the ceremonies they have to follow, steeped in all this stuff. And then they're hearing God has made a way for this to be resolved. And you could be made clean, so, so clean, clean, made clean once for all. No more ritual cleansing. Why? You'll be made clean once for all. You can imagine people going back to their neighborhood and saying, you wouldn't believe this. Do you realize there's a way that we could be made clean once for all, no more sacrifices? Clean once for all, no more ritual cleansing? Clean once for all, no more ceremonies? Clean once for all, no more running to a, a temple and having an animal killed for us? We can be totally and completely forgiven. They're running and sharing this message. Notice verse 44. So the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. These guys are running out there. They're telling everybody about what Christ has done. And the whole town shows up. Who doesn't want to hear a message like that? People want to be set free. People want to know they can be forgiven. People want to know that it could be literally finished. That I, am, I have ceased striving and I stand complete in God. People want that. And so they've coming out, they're hearing this. Now, here's the reality though. That's not the only story because the gospel also evokes a negative response. The next response we see is jealousy. Those who hate the gospel are challenged. Notice the jealousy, verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So now, when they say Jews there, don't think of just like Jews in terms of just the ethnic group. Luke, throughout Acts, when he he talks about the Jews, he's referring to the leadership of Israel. In this case, it would be the Pharisees. And so here's what's happening. Those that were the head of the synagogue are standing back as the whole town is showing up and when you talk about the whole town showing up you're not just talking about jews and gentiles who are interested in judaism gentiles are showing up people are showing up there's just a mass of people this building is obviously not big enough probably would be big enough to even contain all the people and the leadership of the synagogue is going we don't like this We do not like this. This is not what this synagogue was built for. We did not design it around this kind of stuff. And so they're filled with jealousy. Very interesting. Jealousy is a very uh, true reality when you take the gospel out to another culture. Because you see, here's the thing. Religion, religion as an entity, can be a very strong uh, grip of power over people. One of the things that you find true of any cult, of any religious group that isn't centered on Christ, is that that religion becomes power over people. And they can dominate over people. And control people. Control how they live. Control what they wear. Control what they do. Control what they watch on television. Control all this stuff, right? And when you go in with the message that, hey, listen, man, you don't need all this stuff. Jesus has set you free. The power brokers get upset. They get upset. They get jealous. They don't, they, they're, they're being displaced. And that's what's happening here. You know, when, when, uh, 
As you know, I go down to every tribe and teach at their school, the Center for Pioneer Church Planning, a couple times a year. And uh, when one of my classes I teach is teaching the, the, the trainees how to teach the Bible. And one of the things I often say when I'm teaching in the school down there is I tell them, now listen, you know, you're learning how to teach the Bible and you're going to get all excited about teaching this and, and this is going to be great. And you're going to understand how to, you know, bring these principles to another culture. But realize this, when you go into that culture and you want to open up the Word of God, you are challenging those who have the religious control over that community. You're challenging them. And they will oppose you because you are taking away their power source. You go into a culture and you preach Jesus. If it's an animistic culture, that witch doctor will want to kill you. They will want to kill you because they have control over this this community. And you're going in there and tearing it away from them. And you need to realize that. It's one of the things we need to pray for when we consider our missionaries going into cultures like this. They go into an animistic culture, a culture where they're worshiping the spirits and the gods and the trees, and that the spirits are in the trees and all these kinds of things. And, and you might just think, great, we get to bring the message of Jesus. But you have to realize there's a, there's a spiritual leader there who you're taking away all of his or her power. And jealousy will evoke, and jealousy will eventually turn to anger. I know a guy who's missionary, I can't tell you what country he was in, because uh, he's still there, and, uh, and, and he came as a Bible translator. He was translating the Bible into this local language. This is going on today, right now. And he said there was a dominant religion that was at work there, and when he began to translate the Bible in that language, the people of that religion tried to kill him. And he had to go up on top of this mountain and hide his family out. Because he was just taking the power source away. That's what's happening here. These Pharisees own this village. They own this community. They're the religious power brokers. Paul has come in and said, listen, you don't need this anymore. And so what did they do? They try to, this, is how, this is how you always know you're dealing with a false teacher. They don't deal with, with you on a theological level. Notice what they do. Right? They're filled with jealousy, so they begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. They start saying, you can't believe this message. This is a bad message because Paul is a bad man. See, that's that's what's saying they're happening. It's always amazing when you bring truth to somebody who doesn't want truth. You know what they do? They don't argue it on a theological level. Hey, I'm questioning what you have to say there. Is this right? Is this wrong? They go after you. You're the bad person. You're the bad one. You know what you did to me? You know what you did? And they just go after you personally. Anytime, and this is true even in this truth today, you can bring the truth to somebody. If they don't want to hear it, they won't deal with you just on the level of the truth. The attack becomes personal. You're this, you're this, you did this to me, you did, and this is what's happening, right? So now Paul is being attacked. Don't believe his message because Paul's a bad man. Don't believe his message, Paul's a bad man. So that's what's going on. Now, what do you do when you face that moment? On the one hand, you've just preached. You got the whole city there, and now you got the religious leadership trying to take you down. What do you do at that moment? Well, what's needed now is the next reaction of courage. Courage. You cannot shrink back. It'd be very easy to try to get a meeting with the religious leaders and to say, hey, listen, can't we all get along? You know, don't let's not make this personal. Come on, can't we all just get in a room together and make up and 
and be friends and, you know, okay, I'll, I'll back off. How about I speak a little less on Jesus and, and, and then you speak a little less on law and we'll find some point where we could meet together. That, that could be very tempting because no one likes conflict. No one wants to be in a situation where they're being attacked. But what's needed is courage. And so that's our next response. Let's look at the courage of Paul. Verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Do you see that there? Boldly. Saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Now that is a power-packed statement that in many ways you're, you see the boldness, but, but you might not catch the, the real oomph of what's being said here. So let me try to unpack it for you. The reason why Luke is saying he spoke out boldly is because what is about to follow is about as bold of a thing that you could say at that moment. Now you've got to realize something. And we've got to put a little bit of like history together here just for this to make sense. God creates a world, puts in the world Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin. God says, listen, I'm going I'm to provide a way of salvation. I'm going to provide this way. And this way will come by somebody who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Now, we don't know who that person is, but as history begins to unfold, we begin to discover some things about this person. We begin to discover he's going to bless the nations. We learn that from Abraham. He's going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. He isn't just going to save one people group. He's going to save, bring salvation to the whole world. And then God forms a nation and says, out of this nation, what I want for you is I want you to be the nation through which this one will emerge that will bring salvation to the world. And through this nation, I, w- I want to reveal my holiness. I want to reveal my character. I want to reveal how I'm going to do it. I'm going to put it all out there. And that's what Israel was designed to be. This major revelation of God's holiness, of his character, of his truth, of what he's about to do. And he lays it all out there. And then at the appointed time that God had picked in history, he was going to bring the one who was going to bring salvation to the world. And that was all going to grow out of Israel. And then when that person came... He was going to save, bring salvation, total forgiveness to the world. And then what Israel was to do was to go around to the whole world and tell everybody, Jesus is the one. Lay down your works. Lay down your religious practices. You don't need it. You can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. You can be complete. You can be restored. You can be made brand new. You can have the promise of eternity. And they were to go to the whole world and tell everybody. And guess what happened? That's exactly what's going on. Jesus came. A bunch of Jews got saved. And what are they doing? They're going out to the world to tell the world that Jesus is the Messiah. Now Paul is standing face to face with some religious leaders of Judaism. And they're saying, we hate your message and we hate you. We hate your message and we hate you. And Paul says, stop. This is what verse 46 is. It's necessary that we come to you. It's necessary that we stand in this synagogue. Because do you understand what our mission is? Our mission is to go to the nations and tell them they can be forgiven. That's our mission. And then Paul says, but you know what? You have taken that truth. You have taken the the truth of the gospel. You've taken that mission and you have thrown it aside and you have stood before God and said, I don't need to be saved. I don't need your truth. I don't need anything. That's what he's saying. He goes, and so therefore, I'm going to stand before these Gentiles and I'm going to tell them, 
God is for you. If you won't do it, I'm doing it. That's the boldness, right? That's bold. You've rejected your mission. You've rejected truth. You've rejected salvation. You think you're above it all. And now it's my job. I will go there and I will tell them the truth. That's verse 47. He says, and and where's the scriptural command for this? Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Very powerful statement, isn't it? He's quoting from Isaiah 49. Interesting. Isaiah, first half of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, basically outline all the problems going on in Israel. Spotload of problems. And then in chapter 40, he begins to start talking about the coming of the Messiah. And as he begins to unfold the coming of the Messiah, we get to chapter 49, and he begins to discover that not only is this Messiah going to come, but that God has designed Israel. He raised up this nation so that they would go to the world and tell the world, this is for you. This is for you. And he's saying, there's our marching orders. There's our marching orders. And he's telling these guys, since you've rejected this, I have to do it. This is God's plan. So, Paul preaches this message. There's excitement. The excitement creates jealousy. Jealousy then evokes Paul to have to have courage to stand up against the critics and to tell them, you're wrong. You've rejected God. You've rejected his purposes. God has designed us to share this with the nations. And you won't go. You won't be part of the nations. You're fighting this. Therefore, you're fighting God because this is what we're designed. This is why we're Israel. Israel's designed to tell the nations that they can be set free in Jesus. That's our mission. But notice what happens now. Because Paul has the courage to proclaim this, and he proclaims it publicly, notice what happens. Because the whole thing is Paul did not do this. He didn't shrink back. He publicly proclaimed it. What happens is belief emerges. Notice the belief. Verse 48 And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a powerful state, powerful description. Let me kind of explain this to you. I want you to think about something. In Israel, or I should say in in the world at this point in time, and a lot of the world is still like this today, not all of it, but, but the world at that time, they would have thought of God or gods as being localized. They would have thought of the fact that, you know, you worship this God and this God is for this region and this God is for this region and this is the God of this people and this is the God of that people. And even the God of Israel was seen as the Jewish God. It was a localized God. Which means that if you want to worship any particular God, you have to kind of join in with those people. So if you, you know, if you wanted to be, worship the God of Israel, the people would have thought, well, we better go become a Jew. We better start kind of living in this localized thing. The message of the gospel is that there's one God who made all of the world. And that one God has made one way of salvation for the whole world. You all can be set free. You don't have to join a nation. You know what's amazing is that that, that Christianity is not an ethnically based religion. We don't put a temple in a particular city and say, everybody come here, worship God here because this is where God is. We don't have to do that. God is everywhere. One God over the whole world. 
and you can be made right with him. No traveling, no journeys, no pilgrimages, none of this. You can be made right through the work that he did with Jesus on the cross. And so they hear this and they begin to rejoice. They begin to glorify the word of the Lord, meaning they're glorifying this message. They're saying this is the best news we ever heard. We're set free. And then notice this really complex statement. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Some people read that and go, what does that mean? I remember the first time I ever read that. I'm like, what did that just say? can't believe that's in the Bible. But let me explain it to you. Because you'll understand it, I think. It's not real complex. But we'll explain it kind of backwards. We'll begin first with belief. What does believe mean? Believe means that you absolutely trust. You order your life. You know my example I use when I try to explain belief or faith. So if I put, you know, a billion dollars in the middle of this gym, and I say every one of you is going to get a million dollars tomorrow, there's the cash. It's right here. We've got security around it. But tomorrow you've got to come. And you're all going to get a million dollars. You get to go in there. We're just going to be dividing them up into little million-dollar segments. And you all get your million dollars tomorrow. And you see the cash and you say, I'm getting that cash. I'm getting it. And so you go home. And the first thing you do is you craft the email to your boss. Guess what? I'm not coming in tomorrow or forever. Right? The email you've been waiting to write. And then you start Googling new cars and a new house. And and you start altering your life because you believe that this cash is yours. You're getting it. That's what belief means. It it, it means that I so trust this thing that I'm going to alter my life by it. And we'll see that that's what they did. And they already, right? I mean, they're already the first evangelists, man. These people are running around telling everybody, man, this is it. This is the news. Now, how do you get there? How do you get there? How do you get to the point in your life where you say, yeah, I I see that message and and I believe that? Well, you have to realize something. That work is not something done on your own. Jesus, or I should say this way, the New Testament says that there there are many things that God does, but I'm going to point out two very important things that God does for you to get you to that point. Because it's not just a solo work. This is the good news that I have, by the way. This, this particular verse is one of the verses that, that gives me hope every week when I stand up here to preach. I'm not alone up here. It's not up to me to convince you of anything. It's up for me to be clear. And God's job will be to convince you, to open your eyes, right? Because there's two things. Jesus said this in John 16, verses 7 through 11. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to highlight a few of those things. But John 16, 7 through 11, Jesus says, I got to go to heaven. I got to go. And the disciples are like, don't go. But yes, I have to go. Here's the reason why I have to go. Because when I go, I'm going to send my spirit to the world. And here's what my spirit's going to do. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The spirit is going to come and show you that you're not right with God. And the spirit is going to come and show you that Jesus is righteous. And the spirit is going to show you that Jesus raised from the dead and is now judge of humanity. The spirit is going to open your eyes to this. And the Spirit's going to go around the world suddenly showing people that they're not right with God and they need to be right with God. And the only way to be right with God is through Jesus. And he said, my Spirit's going to do that work. And so when I stand up here, or when Jim stands up here and proclaims the gospel at the Lord's table, the Spirit of God is at work. And some people are going, I need that truth. He's so right. I'm finding my comfort right there in the cross. 
So that's what's going on. The Spirit's at work. And Jesus said, I'm going to send my Spirit to do this. So that's John 16, 7 through 11. You can read that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is being a, kind of attacked because he's only preaching Jesus. That's all he does. And the people say, man, you're like so lame. The philosophers preach so much better than you preach. But when you get up, man, you just talk about Jesus. And he said, yes, it is so true that all I do is I talk about Jesus. And it is totally true that the God of this world has blinded people's eyes and their minds. And they can't see Jesus. I get that. But do you realize something? I can't gimmick them to open their eyes. Right? I mean, I could juggle chainsaws. I could do all kinds of things, magic tricks. I could take steel and bend it and show people how strong I am. Tell them, that's Jesus, the strength of God. Right? I could do all this stuff, but it will never open their eyes. But then he says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. But the same God who said, let there be light, is the same God that will shine the light of the glory of Christ in their minds. And so here's what happens. God is at work, his spirit is at work, convicting people of their sin and what they believe about Jesus. And God is removing the blinders from their eyes. And so when the spirit is at work and the father is removing the blinders and the preacher is standing up pointing people to Jesus, you know what you get? Belief. You get belief. And that's how it works. And so what I pray for is I say, God, spirit, open people's eyes. God, remove the blinders, and then let me be clear about Jesus. And when those things happen, people believe. It's amazing. And he said, that's what happened. God is at work, man. And all of a sudden, all the people that God removed the blinders and the Spirit convicted them of their sin, that heard Jesus, boom, they believed. Powerful moment. And why do we see that? We see that because this is what God is doing. And, and these Gentiles are part of God's plan I remember years ago, it wasn't here, another place when I was in ministry and, and I would preach and this guy would come up every Sunday and he'd say, I don't believe what you're saying at all. But he would show up every week, he'd take notes and he'd be like, I still don't believe what you're saying. I don't believe it. And it got to be a joke. He'd walk out of the church and he'd say, Steve, I still don't believe. I still don't believe. He'd smile. Sometimes he'd invite me to go out with him and he'd say, here's my problem with, the, with what you're saying about Jesus. And he'd lay out all of his problems and we would talk about it. And at the end he'd say, I still don't believe. He moved away. About a year or two later, he calls me up and he goes, I believe one day. I believe. And, you know, God opened his eyes. He said, suddenly everything you said made sense. See, it isn't me. I can't convince him into the kingdom. Only God can do it. And that's what's happening here. And so we have belief going on. And notice what happens in verse 49. You know you got belief because then the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. These guys are running everywhere. They're telling everybody about Jesus. It's a powerful moment. But... As the excitement leads to jealousy, jealousy leads to courage. Courage is leading to belief. Notice how it ends with anger. With anger. Because those who are resistant, they will attack when they see belief. It's not neutral. It never is neutral. It never becomes neutral. You need to remember that. Verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. To put it in our terms, the religious leaders went to the people of prominence and gossiped. Do you know what they're doing? Do you know how bad they are? Do you know how horrible these people are? These people are so bad. They're going to tear down the community. These, these guys are bad leaders. They're bad this. They're bad that. And the people started going, hey, they are bad leaders. We need to get them out. We need to protect our, our, our community. Right? So it would be like going to the city council. 
and sitting down with the city council and saying, if you don't keep these guys here, you're going to have all kinds of problems if you don't throw them out. You better throw them out. In fact, you better kind of rough them up a little bit, let them know this is bad. Because if you don't rough them up in front of people, then all the people that believe their message are going to go out and tell everybody we're going to have mass chaos. And so what do they do? They just personally attack, personally attack them. And, and now the persecution has begun. And notice what they do, verse 51. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Now, this is a religious statement. They didn't shrink back when they left, right? The persecution comes. They're starting to beat them up, rough them up, probably throw them in jail, all kinds of things. And so they leave. Okay, you want us to go? We go. But as they leave, they went through a Jewish ritual of saying, we reject you. We reject your message. We reject you. We are standing bold. We're not running from you. We are standing here saying that before God, you are rejected. You do not have the leadership you think you have. You're not in the status you think you are. And so they shook their feet. It was a way of saying, I reject you. It was a public statement to let everybody know these are no longer the right leaders. They stood bold. Notice verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful statement. You know, even though things are getting rough, right? These guys are getting thrown out and getting beaten up. Everybody's just pumped because the message of Christ has been made known to them. And not only that, they get to be part of the community because these Gentiles are getting the Spirit. That statement is there to let everybody know there is no difference between this guy from modern-day Turkey, right? Turkish guy, and the Apostle Paul. There's no difference between this guy and Peter. They both have the Spirit. This is what Luke's telling us. There wasn't any categories anymore like, you know, the Apostles and then and then the non-apostle Jews, and then the Gentiles. There was no caste system here. They have the Spirit just like Peter. They're part of this thing just like Peter, all one. That's what Luke's telling us. It's a powerful moment. Okay. And I want you to notice, too, by the way, that they're called disciples. The term Christian shows up roughly, but the real main description is a disciple because being a Christian is not just a political title or a moral title. I am a Christian, therefore I don't go to R-rated movies. It's not a moral title. It means you are a follower of Jesus. You live what he lives for. You love what he loves. You hate what he hates. You're all in with him. You're all in with him. You'll die to yourself and you will, you will, you will love what he loves. You're a disciple. These guys understood this. That's what it means to believe. It means you start following Jesus. Okay, so what do we get from this? Well, I want to just, again, kind of take you back to where we began. Where do we begin? The gospel is not a neutral message, right? It's going to evoke responses. What is needed in the world is for us not to shrink back or to try to mitigate or minimize those responses. We don't want to step back and say, hey, you know, you know, I don't want to, maybe I'll just talk about love instead of Jesus. Maybe I'll just talk about, you know, hope instead of heaven. Maybe I'll just alter the message a little bit because, hey, I know that these people might get upset and I don't want them to get upset. But we can't shrink back. Because here's the one thing you've got to remember. When God's at work in someone's life, man, truth makes a desire for more truth. I firmly believe this, that you can sit with a group of people, and I've experienced this. I have been in rooms with people who are hostile 
to the gospel. And I have literally said, let's just talk about truth. I have literally opened my Bible with people. And I have seen God work in people's lives who don't believe, but yet they're hearing this message and they're talking about it and they're engaging it and some believe. It is so true. Do not be afraid of the truth. Don't be afraid of it. Don't mitigate it. You don't need to minimize it. Okay? The gospel's not neutral. It will produce a variety of responses. The anger never goes away in Acts. The jealousy never goes away in Acts. And all of the early followers of Jesus experienced high levels of pain and many death. But it was worth it because many received life. But second thing to keep in mind, as we kind of wrap this up, is that this should also inform how we should pray for our missionaries. You know, we send them out, you know, we, and we send them into a, a location to go preach Jesus. We have to realize that they'll send back reports on people, you know, hey, God opened these people's eyes, and, and they heard the message, and there was great truth, and da-da-da-da-da. We're going to get those reports back. But at the same token, they're challenging the power brokers. And we need to pray for courage. We need to pray for boldness. We need to pray that they'll stand firm, that they won't shrink back. We need to pray for that. We need to pray that the, that, that the, that the community of believers that, that have been impacted by the gospel will stand in the strength of the Spirit and be united. And we need to pray for that daily for our missionaries and for people around the world because this is the reality of what it is to take the gospel out. And, uh, and so, so as we pray for ourselves in this, Let's pray for our missionaries as well. So would you bow your head with me? I think a good way to close is in prayer for this. So let's pray together. Father, what a powerful message Jesus is. That you can set aside all the works of the law. That they've been fulfilled in Christ. That we stand forgiven. That we stand holy in your sight that you are working to make us blameless for the day of judgment, and that we are loved by you with an everlasting love. There are so many people who need to hear that message. They need to set down the labor. They need to set down the guilt. They need to set down their shame. They need to set down their past. They need to, they need to recognize that you're not defining them by their past, by their sins, by their parents, by their issues, that in Christ all things can be made new. Lord, may we be bold with that message because there are millions of people who need to hear this. One God made a way for all of humanity to be saved, every nation and every tribe. Lord, there's healing power in that message. Lord, it's also a challenging message to those who are steeped in their traditions and steeped in their control and steeped in their power grids. And they will rise up Lord, even when we share truth with people, we confront people with truth, we lay their sins before them, we lay the hope of the gospel, that they will attack us personally. They won't just deal with things on a theological level, but they will attack personally and try to tear down reputations. And Lord, it's easy to want to run. May we stand courageous at those moments and not seek to protect ourselves, but to stand in the protection that you give. And Lord, I pray for our missionaries. I pray for, for Milan as he preaches the gospel there in the Czech Republic, boldly going and 
going into from community to community and, and dealing with this kind of stuff and dealing with opposition and, and dealing with people who, who want to resist the gospel. And may, may he and his team not shrink back and, and stand bold in the midst of this. And for, for the Karises, as they are out and, and moving into an, into an animistic culture, may you protect them from the spiritual leaders of those communities who will no doubt feel the threat of the message of the gospel. And for Todd, who goes around the world sharing with pastors how to stay true to the word, maybe he be a man of encouragement and stand there boldly encouraging our brothers that, that, that are preaching in, in hostile territories. And, uh, and, and may he be a man who can bring that truth to them and spur them on to have courage to be men of truth. And Lord, may we even this week not shrink back, but be bold in the proclamation of the love of the glorious gospel and the grace of Jesus. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.